Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, we just wanted to pass along that we saw that a lot of the ElixirConf US talks have been released to YouTube. So at the time of this recording, we're up to 44 release talks. And I don't actually know if that's all of them, if there's anything left, if we still have some more to look forward to, but wanted to pass along the playlist where you can see them all. And just to highlight a few of the recently released videos, wanted to call those out. There's one from Owen Bickford on Elixir's secret ingredient. And Jeffrey Utter talks about scaling teams with Kafka on the beam. Andrew Bennett, Erlang Dist filtering and WhatsApp runtime system. I think that'd be really cool to see what's going on with, you know, WhatsApp scale stuff. That, that's always cool. And then finally, the most recent one was Michael Lubis, Elixir Security, a business and technical perspective. I think it's great that these are being released. You know, it is kind of a slow trickle out, but actually in some ways that makes it a little bit more easy to consume it all. So it's not like all dropping and you're like, I feel like I have to watch all of it all at once. Yeah. Like you can slowly catch up to it all. Yeah, there were some really great talks. So I really encourage folks to go drop in there and find something. All right, next up, we've got LiveView Native updates. So they they dropped a blog post, part two of the road toward LiveView Native. So it's quite a lengthy article, but we picked out a couple of highlights here. First up, it's it's mostly going over the history of LiveView Native and the development. So it's kind of just an update, right? So one of those updates uh, that it talks about is how LiveView Native developers propose to Elixir the use of multi-character sigils. Now we know Elixir has multi-character sigils now that was introduced back in Elixir 115, but the the origin story of that uh, involves LiveView Native. So that's pretty pretty neat. Ultimately, the specific sigils that they were looking for were for a specific platform such as SwiftUI or Jetpack for Android. So tilde SwiftUI for those SwiftUI <laughs> templates, I guess, right? So pretty nifty. And I think we talked about it back when multi-character sigils were introduced, but pretty cool possibilities here. We know the Heeks one is just tilde H, but it could also be HTML now, or we could do HTML or to sigil JSON or sigil SQL. Possibilities are pretty cool here. The other highlight here was how Phoenix layouts could be used for live view native templates. Live view native seeks to use Phoenix layout templates to wrap their components up for better navigation and structure rather than relying on the client's configuration. In any case, the big theme of it is that there's they're still working on it, ongoing development work, refactoring internal workarounds and things like that. So anyway, if you want a window to live view native development, go check out that blog post. Next up, Lambda Days is open and accepting proposals for speakers. Uh, Lambda Days is a functional programming focused conference. It's not just Elixir and Beam languages. The event's going to be in Krakow, Poland on the 27th and 28th of May, 2024. Elixir is usually represented to some degree there. So if you're in the area or you want to visit Poland in the summer, it may be a great place to go share some Elixir skills with a friendly audience. And next up, Elixir 1.16 which is not yet released, it's in the RC phase, it now allows us to run multiple tests with line numbers. So this little tip came from Herman Valesco, and it was just showing that we can say, you know, mix test, and then a test file, colon and a line number, which we could do previously, but now you can do another test file and a line number. So like, say you're working on that one piece of functionality where you have a unit test, and maybe a more of an integration style test, but they're both kind of coming at the same code from different directions. It'd be nice to keep rerunning those pieces. 
So that's a possible cool use there. Imagine you could also use it for testing two different lines in the same file, even if you wanted to. But also just wanted to remind people that you don't have to wait for that new feature. You can still use something like mix test dash dash failed to rerun those tests that have previously failed or mix test dash dash stale as well. So it's really neat that mix has a lot of these features to make testing and retesting failed stuff pretty easy. So I love it. I'm imagining a, a Vim workflow now <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that leverages this. Moving on, Theo, a developer, social media influencer on Twitter, Twitch, and YouTube, probably other places, had a live stream with Jose Valine for two and a half hours. So if you have that kind of time of your in your life, <laughs> go check out this raw, unedited, probably unedited video on demand. It's on YouTube. I, I think it's it's interesting. I, I don't know much about Theo other than he's he just seems to be everywhere and has opinions about things, and you know how opinions <laughs> go. But it's interesting to see Elixir's influence and reputation out in what I consider to be more generalist or popular kind of point of view. And and just from what I observed, I was not there for the two and a half hours, but I did pop in for a little bit. And generally speaking, like I'm going to ignore the conversation about types because that that can just devolve into chaos and and unproductiveness. But <laughs> other than that, the reputation that Elixir and Jose Valim have out in the public, it is it is seen as a very good language, as a helpful language, as an enjoyable language with features and, and you know things that other languages simply do not have. I think that is acknowledged. And so I I, I enjoy that this broad audience here was able to to see that and experience that even from the voice of Theo. Theo was also a proponent of Elixir. Anyway, two and a half hours. If you got that kind of time, go watch out for that YouTube link and maybe tell us what we missed (laughs) out of that. Last up, we just wanted to share an article from Peter Ulrich. He tends to share pretty good articles. And this one is about if you ever find yourself in a complex situation of needing to connect to a read-only repository in Phoenix and test it. And usually the solution is just don't test it. He kind of goes through some tips of like some important config changes. If you do want to be able to test it and you want it to boot up in test mode, some sandbox changes. And then more importantly, he kind of gets into some of the gotchas with Ex Machina. If you use that library, there might be some things you need to do. If you share the same library, you might have problems and why. And he kind of talks about some of the ways that they went about solving it. So it feels normal and it just kind of works as you would expect and you know in the end they call it a facto gator so i think that that checks out in my book elixir and phoenix are incredible they make it possible to quickly build highly resilient and reliable systems capable of operating at incredible scale fly.io is a great place to host elixir apps You can deploy your app to multiple regions around the world with a private network linking them all together so your app can cluster and globally do some incredible Phoenix magic. Give your users a more responsive UI while writing less code and moving the app closer to your users without needing an ops team. Check out fly.io for your next Elixir app. Now we just wanted to take a little time to catch up on some of the things that we're working on or interested in and, you know, little updates. So David, you know, you've written this awesome multi-part guide for doing safe ecto migrations. 
it's been a long time since we've talked about that. Maybe you can just kind of give a little intro to what that is in case people aren't familiar with it. And then you kind of share what some of the things are that you're thinking about and doing in that area. Yeah. Safe Ecto Migrations is a four-part guide on the Fly.io Phoenix files. And it goes through several things. One of the parts in there is a recipe book of common operations you might do for database migrations. And the recipes give you safe and unsafe things from those common things. It's in the blog series, but there's also a Git edition of that. For what it's worth, you should probably go to the Git edition of that, because that one is definitely up to date. And people can post discussions there. But there's also more examples there of like how to do a backfill of, you know, arbitrary values or something. We found a bug and we need to correct a thing. So, or, or we added a column and now we need to put in a bunch of values on there. There's guides on how to do that safely. So that's safe ecto migrations in a nutshell. So four part series, recipe book, tutorial examples, bare minimum kind of stuff. So it's not like, it's not a library that you, you use yet, right? Over the past couple of months, you know, there's there's been several scenarios that have come up that I've opened up some issues, and some other folks have opened up issues on the Safe Ecto Migrations repo. Always encourage you to do that, by the way. So if you've come across a scenario that turned out to bite you somehow, and Safe Ecto Migrations didn't tell you about it, you should open an issue. Even if there's not a good solution for it, we just want to mark out what moments might be unsafe. So some of the unsafe things that have come up, or verifications that we want to do. So I'm just going to go through a couple of them. First of all, we need to verify like concurrent index table locks. <laughs> Gosh, how to how to not go into the weeds on this? <laughs> Good lord. Okay, so the guide currently says that with Postgres, create a an index concurrently which does not block reads, and there are two options of a lock: there's share update exclusive or there's row exclusive, and they can block or not block writes in a way. Simple writes might be okay. A complex rights may not be okay. That's something that we might be able to do. I think the guide says that it's like it'll it will block something, but it actually may not block something. So that's good news. In other words, that means that it's probably more safe to do concurrent index table locks than the guide states. So that's that's great news. I just need to verify that. Moving on from that, this is a new item, but there's some benchmarks out there that says that when you create a column. A lot of times people just put in like an ecto, you just put in string as the type. And that currently defaults to like a var car of, of some length, um, 255, I think is the default. So you, you get a, a short text column, but over 255 characters, you you get some some database error. The, the benchmarks suggest that that var car column is not really worthwhile anymore. And that text columns, which have no limit, are virtually the same. So the better practice in this case might be to just recommend the text column instead of string. It's more about breaking your muscle memory, I think, for most people <laughs> than it is anything else. It's not so much a caution of like, don't do this. It's just more of like, there's a better way that has really no trade-off. So that's one. Two more. These are actually some gotchas. So first of all, when you're adding a non-immutable default value to an existing table, non-immutable, meaning it's an expression of some sort, right? Say so you're adding a column to a table, you need to default to a value, like a like a Boolean or something, right? Or, or maybe even better, a date. If you put in the default value as, as a, a function, that's not immutable, right? It has to be, it has to be evaluated for every row. That's, the, that's where it becomes unsafe. And so there's, there's a section of 
the Postgres docs that I point out. And this isn't in the Safe Acto migration like guide yet, but it's going to make its way in there. The Safe Acto migrations note should add a note about adding a new column with a default. Currently, it it ignores the non immutable like scenario here, so it implies that it's it's safe, but it's not really safe when it when you're adding like an expression as that default. That expression, I've typically seen it as like this default value for this date column is the expression of now or today or something, right? That's an expression that is non-immutable. That's unsafe at that point. So we should add a note to call that out. All right, and then the last one, this is actually community-driven, which is awesome. I love these. Somebody noted that when we're backfilling data into an existing table, I have a code snippet that that paginates through all of your existing records, does some business logic of your choice, and then applies the update and then moves on to the next page. One of the ways that it does that is it takes the last position of the page it's on by some ID, typically, and it uses that as the starting point for the next page. There might be an error in that <laughs> in that example that as it is right now. The error being that it assumes that the returned IDs are given in the order provided. And that's not always guaranteed. Guaranteed is the the keyword there. I think it typically does. And I think that's why it's so easily missed because it can be as easily assumed to be an order, but it may not be. Somebody brought up an issue that says that it, it may not be in order. And that's, that's correct. So I'm going to go back and I'll, I'll update the guide and the code snippets to ensure that that order is guaranteed. And the short version is that you can ensure the order of the returned IDs from a page that you're updating by using a, a common table expression, which will order the IDs that they're, as they're returned. That's the idea. Anyway, that's what's been happening in Safe Ecto Migrations world. And I, I, I feel like I might be a broken, unreliable record at this point, but <laughs> Safe Ecto Migrations is just a guide right now, a, a Git repo of just a, a text, right? I still have it in my mind and I'm still trying to actively work towards an actual library, open source library that you're able to use kind of like Phoenix Live Dashboard that you mount into your app and it provides to you a solution to run these kinds of like backfill tasks in a pluggable, safe, by default kind of way with a UI that shows you the progress that gives you the ability to queue these things up. That's still in my plans. I'm still really looking forward to that. So if uh, you have ideas about that, uh, just hit me up on um, Twitter or something. I'm, I'm, I'm getting closer to being able to do that. I've had a lot of life things that just gotten in the way. Building an office, I had uh, kids, I've moved states, I've changed jobs. All the things that give you gray hairs, I, I've, got, I've got them now. <laughs> anyway, but things are starting to slow down here soon. So I'm going to find myself back into that world, hopefully very soon. So you're not, you're not talking about like a credo type library that will give you hints. You're no UI and, and, and everything. Just for backfilling kind of stuff. Oh, just for backfilling. Okay. Yeah. Just for backfilling. Credo, I think is, is the right answer. And that would be something interesting too. I, I, I've, I've thought about that providing credo checks for ecto migration kind of tips, but there's existing solutions out there that have been fine. Uh, excellent migrations being one of them. And you can always write your own credo, you know, checks when it's in this folder check these expressions. A repository of those checks would be pretty helpful, but I've also found it to be pretty specific to your app. So it's harder to generalize that and be accurate. (laughs) 
but credo is yeah a good place to put migration checks but excellent migrations kind of does that now as well so anyway good solutions out there now and i would encourage folks to really contribute to that before making up a new solution isn't that interesting though that you have a project like that you, you think like okay I've, I've done it i've released it and then it just it kind of keeps drawing attention for, <laughs> for like years then people read it and use it yeah well it's meant to be a, re- a, a reference yes. that was the goal that's why i wrote it because you know, for, for such a long time in the Rails world, I think it's just called Safe Migrations. It's a recipe book, a lot like Safe Ecto Migrations. And I would, even writing Elixir and Ecto stuff, I would go to that repo and like reference, like, what am I doing here? And then like translate it in my head to Ecto stuff. I had some more ideas of like additional things that can go into it. And I wanted a, a library to go along with it, kind of like the Rails gem over there. But yeah, I continued to go back to it. All the time, every single time I wrote a migration, I'd open that repo up and I'd just read through it to make sure, check, 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 check. Okay, we're, we're all good here. I'm probably making a safe bet here. I still get like a little, of, not upset, but like, gosh darn it, I got to do this thing. And now I got to, now I, I can't just do one migration. I got to split it up into like three or five or something. <laughs> like, man, it's tedious. <laughs> I just, I just so, so tempted to just like, that's nah, great. Well, well, sometimes <laughs> it, you just have to evaluate, like, how critical is it that this is done safely? I, am I the only user of this database? Kind of a situation, right? It's like, well, uh, I can kind of weigh the risks, you know, speed versus care and and integrity of data. <laughs> yeah, if it's like a, a table that no one reads very often, like, you're probably okay to do a, a like a, a flash of downtime on that table that that no one's reading so it's so dependent on your use cases it's difficult to make a universal tool but on the other hand like senior developer mentor version of me is like anyone else that's doing migrations i'm like no you gotta go look at the guy you gotta just (laughs) just do it just get in the practice of it you know do it anyway even if you don't feel like you need it and i agree with that too you should get into the practice of just doing the right thing that way the goal being it becomes your muscle memory to do it the safe way. But taking down prod for an hour on the most important table is really how you cement that learning into your mind. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I am probably uh, removing valuable learning lessons from a lot of folks. <laughs> Very valuable. Yes, lessons that they will never forget, yes. But they won't be fired, you know? I'm, I am saving people's jobs, people. Make mistakes, get fired. That's our motto. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for me. What's up in your world, Mark? Oh, well, so lately, Fly has been working on getting their GPUs out to customers. So like, we have a wait list that people could sign up for. And and those were being evaluated on like, you know, needs assessment and kind of working with different customers and everything. And so like a recent blog post from a coworker was on using the faster whisper model. So whisper being the speech to text, using the faster whisper model on fly GPUs and transcribing audio there and showing how he did that. And so that was really cool, right? Just seeing how much faster it is, even than OpenAI, their implementation of Whisper. I thought that was neat. So what I'm actually focusing on is there is a model called Mistral. I've talked about it here on the show a few times. Mistral being an Apache open source licensed LLM or large language model that does text completion. And it can be made to behave like a chatbot as well. Like you can have a, you know, user communicates with the assistant, like the chat GPT style thing where you have an assistant gives a response. 
And so I've been working on getting that running using Bumblebee on Fly GPUs. I am totally new to this area of Bumblebee and hosting models. And what does that actually mean that I have to do? And I, I run this thing called a serving. And now I want to interact with the model. It's like one of the things I've run into is if I give the same input, it's always giving the same output, which means I need to provide a seed, a randomizing seed for each iteration that I run it. Wait, that's not how AI works. Like the whole point of AI is it's not a pure function. It's like a fake human brain. You give it an input, it's different every time. You've lost the benefit of programming. It's like one of the nice things about programming is like, if you program it right, it works right. And when you go with AI, it's like, why did that happen? We'll never know. Well, we want these AI characters to have a mood, you know? <laughs> Speaking of that, so OpenAI came out with a newer update, ChatGPT4 preview release, and they announced their whole assistance API. And with that, they also announced a feature where you can provide a seed to give more deterministic outputs. I wrote a LangChain library. So it's like for large language models, like where you create chains of operations that you run against them in Elixir. So I have some automated tests. These ones are like local tests. And then these other tests run actually against ChatGPT. And it was hard to write a passing test because it would vary its output. Even if you told it like exactly this, it would give you like high with a period or high with an exclamation point or, you know, it was, it was never exactly the same. So now they added this ability to, to specify a seed to give more deterministic output. And now I'm realizing well, with Mistral, I need the ability to vary the seed because it's always the same thing if I give it, you know, the same inputs. So it is pure functions deterministic in that way if you give it the same seed on the same hardware and everything. I never thought of it like that, like how they, they change so little and how, how that might affect like automated testing. Mm -hmm. So it makes me wonder like, these AIs that are driving cars, like, does that mean they have no tests? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. That's a good question. I don't know. They have AI evaluate the result to summarize to see if it means the same thing. <laughs> and depend on, depending on how ChatGPT is feeling that day, like, we'll know whether or not it failed. Yeah. Oh, I got a bad random seed on this one. It gave me some really wacky stuff. Yeah. So now I'm actually focusing on Mistral being self-hosted. And I think this is actually really important. Because, you know, everyone would say, oh, well, we just want to, you know, use the ChatGPT functions because ChatGPT lets me do this. You know, ChatGPT even announced that they have enterprise plans. You know, they promise, hey, nothing that happens, no data that you give to our enterprise plan will be used in training for anything else. So your data is not going to leak out. But still, I think it's really important to have a non-ChatGPT alternative that's easy to use in other languages. And I care about Elixir, so I want it to be an Elixir. And Elixir has NX. We have Axon. We have the ability to run models. Let's make this happen. Come on, let's, let's connect these pieces together and make it actually something we can use. The reason I think it's so important, though, is because if I'm building something that I consider to be a really core feature of my app, and it's using some kind of AI, right? I don't necessarily want that to be reliant on another service, an external server or service like OpenAI. So the other day, I, if you recall, I talked about creating a, a personal workout assistant, right? This is my, like, my personal trainer named Max, and that's a demo. You can download it and play with it right now. It's free, but you have to have your own ChatGPT API key, right? But I went to go use that for my morning workout, and ChatGPT was down, like hard down for two and a half hours. 
If you're reliant on something else that's an external service that you don't have control over, you don't decide if they change the models and now it significantly changes how it works for you. It doesn't work for you anymore. Or they change their policies. Oh, we don't like that you're doing something that's in this area that, that we disagree with, you know, socially or whatever. You know, and maybe it's not, what you're doing is not illegal. You know, it's not bad, but they don't like it. That just that I am at risk. My project, my company is at risk for their decisions. So because of that, I think it's really important that we have something we can self-host. So I'm not concerned about the data getting out anywhere. I'm not concerned about it going down without my app also going down, right? You know, that it's all part of my whole system that I have control. It really comes down to reliance. Like if it is a core feature of my business, I need to be able to have some assurance that I control it that it's not going to be changed out from underneath me. I'm not going to have a billing change that now makes it super expensive. That's like open source in a nutshell. Like that's why people choose open <laughs> source. But <laughs> five years from now, right, everyone's using open AI for one thing or another. And then they have they have downtime. And then like, it's like AWS US East 1 going down where it's like, ah, well, developers go <laughs> get the day off, I guess. <laughs> just can't. Yep, half the internet's down. Yeah, can't, can't do anything. I get no customer support anymore. <laughs> Open AI is closed for the moment or whatever the case, you know? <laughs> yeah. So because of that, I think it's important to have alternatives. And so I'm trying to make it so the LangChain library, the Elixir LangChain library supports it. So it's really, I can drop in and replace, you know? So like I can say, target this model now, or target that model now. That's the goal. Yeah. Just a quick update on the library. I already had the ability to call functions, right? So I can tell ChatGPT or the LLM, these are the functions that you can call if you want to do something, like record a workout that happened. And that is actually expressed using JSON schema. I wanted the ability to improve how the arguments are defined. It was just using raw JSON schema through maps because it worked. Hey, that's the fastest way to get this working. And then I wanted to go back and I updated it to actually use structs. So those structs have all these properties and they make it easier to get compile time feedback on something being a good or not, you know, set up well or not. And the reason you actually want to use this is something that LLMs are really good at is data extraction. So I can say, maybe here's a function, I have applicants. Maybe I'm going to be running over text from people's resumes, or maybe it's a renter application or something like that. And I have a bunch of text and the LLM can analyze that text, identify pieces of data that I care about, and then call these functions. And the function defines the structure and what data I care about and how to format it and throw it into my application. So I think that's really cool so that I can leverage what normally is a human process of processing all this data, finding the pieces that are relevant because everyone's going to format it differently. It's just text, right? So like, what are the names of the people? What are the maybe education institution names and nested data structures? And if it's like people, I have an array of family members who are on this rental agreement. You know, so I got all these pieces of data I could be extracting and having it pull out for me. That's kind of the use case for it. That's a really good one. It's a really strong point for an LLM. And so I was just working to make that easier. That is done, but not yet released in the latest release. I haven't cut a release yet. The other thing that is really interesting that I want to do and that which ChatGPT's assistants don't do yet, but they tease like, hey, we have a lot more coming. So I totally expect this particular feature to come. 
So I got this feature idea from actually someone who's been contributing on the, the Langchain project. It actually comes from the Python version of the Langchain library, which is kind of the OG, right? And what it is, is called routes. And I hate that name routes because it's so overloaded. It means so many different things. Oh, a router for AI? It is. It is a router for AI. So basically, you run a chain one time, like you run an analysis of the user's input to identify what is it they're trying to do. So your first interaction with your assistant might be, hey, I want to work on creating a new blog post for this product. It figures out and does one analysis on that to figure out what are they trying to do? Is it one of these six things? And maybe one of them is writing a marketing blog post on a product, right? And then once it figures that out, then it says, okay, well, I'm going to go with a different set of prompts to kind of put the assistant into that mode, right? And then with that mode, I can also load in special tools or functions. So maybe it can pull up the product details out of your database and get that loaded in there. Then you have that interaction where you say, what is it you want to do? I have all the product information already here. Let's talk about the marketing post that you want to create. So you're kind of using a router to do a first top level, what direction do you want to go on a tree? And then load in prompts and functions that are specific to that direction. That's the next area that I'm really excited about. I think it'll be really fun. I know ChatGPT is going to do it too. I totally expect that because right now their assistants can't do it, but I expect they will. But that's why I think it's important to have an open source alternative. (laughs) (laughs) That's what my head is in. And it is fun. It's challenging, especially with the Mistral stuff where I'm really getting to the machine learning stuff. I'm really new to all that. I don't know what I'm doing. It's a struggle. So my hope is as I figure these things out, I can share with other people how we do some of these things. Because I'm going to hit all these toe-stubbing events that, you know, someone like Sean Moriarty is like, oh, of course, you just do this. I know exactly what you need to do. It's like, well, I'm not, I'm not Sean Moriarty. I don't, I don't know these things. <laughs> well, unfortunately, that's all the time and all the updates we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.